When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss mounting anger in Moscow following Kyiv's deadly New Year's Eve HIMARS attack, which killed at least 63 Russian soldiers. Plus, with the dawn of 2023, we assess the current strategic picture of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and discuss possible directions the conflict may travel in the weeks and months ahead. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 3rd of January, day 314. Today, to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor Francis Dernley and senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant. The new year provides an opportunity to take stock and reflect. So, I started by asking Francis for his assessment of the current strategic and diplomatic picture from a global perspective. Well, thank you, Claire, and welcome back to all of our listeners around the world. 2023 began with two speeches, both defiant. Zelensky, in his stirring New Year remarks, recalled some of the turning points of the war so far, with footage of Russia's attacks and words of pride for Ukrainians for withstanding the darkness and the cold. We were told you have no other option but to surrender. We say we have no other option than to win, he said, dressed in his trademark khaki outfit. Contrasting that with Putin's speech, the West lied about peace, he shouted, surrounded by soldiers and sailors in uniform. It was preparing for aggression and now they are cynically using Ukraine and its people to weaken and split Russia. We will triumph for our families and for Russia. And then he concluded before toasting the service members with champagne. It speaks, I think, to the central problem as this new year begins. How can this intransigent shift in a direction from the Russian perspective or the Ukrainians that makes a prolonged peace possible. The Ukrainians justly 
are more committed than ever now to fighting on to total victory with Russia completely out of the Donbass and Crimea, more so than they were before the first shells dropped on February 23rd last year. New polls show this, that it has united Ukraine. But the obstinacy in Russia, on the surface at least, is still there. Putin's speech and the wreath of propaganda surrounding it is, on the surface at least, seemingly totally committed to escalation and victory. Thus, as we've said for months now, we're in a war of attrition, a battle of patience and resources measured in manpower, morale and munitions. As things stand, it would seem that Russia is more likely to crack first. Their losses are greater and we were, and were formerly at a level that was so unsustainable that they had to totally change strategy last year. The West remains committed to providing weapons for Ukraine. Morale is high. For all the talk of Russia's infinite supply of men and resources, they are certainly failing on the latter. Sanctions have worked for importing essential material for high-tech weapons, hence them being forced to buy Iranian drones and calling on North Korea and China for assistance. But they are still mobilising hundreds of thousands of men for renewed offensives in the coming months, apparently, as we've talked about before, to try and take Kiev. They are, as I say, spinning this as a war of survival against the West. And given Russia's history, that's not ineffective. So is, of course, state terror and a culturally ingrained acquiescence to fate amid suffering. Thus, while I still believe that Russia is more inclined to blink or break first, as they did in Afghanistan during the Cold War, which they perceived as similarly existential, I fear it will take longer than many predict. Russia's economy, it has to be said, has proved more robust than expected in the short term. Billions of euros worth of oil and gas are still being paid for by foreign powers in Europe and beyond, especially China. The total severance of Russia from the world market has not happened. And to me, this is the biggest strategic mistake of the West has made in this war so far, for reasons that I'll go into shortly. So where does that leave us? Well, as I say, I think a long war is now entirely possible. But that is imagining that the Ukrainians merely absorb loss and chip away at the enemy until the Russia recognised that the cost of the war is not worth it. A strategy that, as we've talked about before, was successful when the Spanish used it against Napoleon in the Napoleonic War, the Afghans in the Soviet-Afghan War and the Vietnamese in the Vietnam War against the Americans. But as we've seen time and time again, Ukraine is capable of far more than that, which means that another scenario is also possible, one that sees the kind of military triumphs the Ukrainians achieved last year, more Kharkivs, more Herzons. And that would mean one of two things. The first, Putin ramps up. He mobilises more men to stop the bleeding. We see a return of the nuclear rhetoric. But if Primea is threatened, we might even see a return of the perceived use of strategic nuclear weapons as being a real threat that countries believe is possible. And I say perceived because it might not be possible for them to deploy them, both for the internal threats to the regime and because the weapons are not actually usable, as we've talked about before. But the perception, I fear, will be enough to spook some countries in Europe. And that's a very dangerous moment for Ukraine, one that could see certain Western countries pull the plug for the first time. The alternative scenario is that Putin is deposed by someone. But I think we have to be realistic. After one year of war, short when measured by comparable ones in history, 
one that has not really impacted Russians in a way that is truly existential and horrific yet. It's, is it really likely that we would see a, la- a leader come in that's less likely to sabre-rattle and, and threaten and escalate this war? This, by the understanding that we have, or at least that I have from, from speaking to our sources, is a prominent fear amongst the intelligence community and among Western leaders. So we find ourselves, I fear, in a strange scenario where a slow victory for the Ukrainians, not overturning this delicate balance, um, keeping Putin in power, making mistakes without the nuclear threat ever being seriously made, may be strategically preferable. But is that morally tenable when so many people are dying day after day? And as I say, it also comes with huge risks for fear of Western support long term. Where would you say that China fits into all of this? Yes, well, that, 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 then we come to the vital unknown quantity, uh, China, who would, would the, yeah, the question is, would they back in that second scenario, Russia, or would they back the West if it looked like Russia was set to seriously deploy nuclear weapons? Do they back them? Do they step away? The initial shock of, of, of this war, bear in mind, has has dilapidated somewhat. The international pressure is not what it was. We've seen atrocities and war crimes committed on a grand scale, yet Russia is not isolated. So, as I say, my fear is that China would publicly back Russia's claim to at least keep Crimea at the cost of peace. Then the ball would be in the Ukrainian the West court. Will they accept that? If the answer's no, then things could turn ugly fast. China may calculate that Cold War II if we want to articulate it in that way, is now inevitable and make a move on Taiwan while they still have the advantage in terms of resources and before the West shifts too decisively away from them economically. Then the danger is we really do face a sort of World War Three type scenario where you've got two entrenched blocks unable to concede enough for peace, but willing to gamble war because they believe it will be contained to their perceived geographical, geographical peripheries as proxy wars. Ukraine in Russia's case, Taiwan in China's. It's worth bearing in mind, of course, that both the previous world war started with that same perception. But let's say the West does give in. In that case, Ukraine may say that the risk for them is to let Russia keep Crimea is so great and they will keep on advancing regardless, even without Western weapons and support. Now, that's precarious for them because they might gamble everything on Crimea and give Russia an opportunity to go on the offensive again in territory already reclaimed by Ukraine. So in summary, we have two sides, Russia and Ukraine, and perhaps China and the West too, holding entrenched positions which cannot coexist. One must blink first. But how do imperialist fascistic nations in the case of Russia, blink and changing their culture as well. Total defeat and usually occupation by a foreign power, Germany, Japan, after the Second World Wars, uh, something that is just not an option in the case of Russia because of the nuclear threat. The other ways, therefore, are sharp or long-term economic suffering, loss of many, many men over, as I say, a sustained period, or in one go, after an enormous military defeat with information bleeding in from outside sources. Which is why, to return to my earlier point, I think it's now vital that governments and organisations continue to spread accurate information, 
work to cut Russia off entirely and make it politically impossible for countries like China to support Russia without themselves taking a major economic hit. If the West doesn't do this, I think we might get to the stage where even uglier scenarios emerge, of which climb down for both sides, east, west, is politically impossible and separation and escalation becomes inevitable. And that, of course, would be a, as I say, a, a rather alarming kind of World War, World War I type scenario. Thus, the severance of Russia from the political and economic international community is, to me at least, the critical element for this war to end in a lasting peace that sees total victory for Ukraine. But it will take time. And how much time will depend, I think, on the West's moral core at this moment. Are Russia's actions truly unconscionable, truly out of step with the international order, or were those empty words? China, India, Pakistan, Africa must be made to see that what Russia has done is totally unacceptable and unsurvivable politically and economically in a globalised world. If we do not, I fear we are making the same mistakes as in the early 1900s and the 1930s. The time to be harsh with Russia economically and politically is now. Failing to act in the name of peace may mean making a far darker future, not just likely, but inevitable. Thank you for that, Francis. I know you'll welcome feedback on that from listeners. Before we turn to the latest news from the front lines, Roland, I was wondering if you have any thoughts you'd like to add on what Francis has just said. Uh, I suppose, um, yeah, Zelensky's New Year speech, that's actually the only thing I, I did on New Year was listen to um, Zelensky's speech. Um, as you know, those of you who are small children will understand, um, midnight isn't an option. But my God, yes, it was... Um, incredibly moving i mean just so we're kind of used to it from him um you know the way he's he's risen to being war leader and he has this knack of 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 just putting out these remarkable remarkably evocative speeches that just speak to the moment you know we saw at the beginning of the war from that very first that very first little video message he did you know from the courtyard of the presidential administration in kiev saying i'm here mr defense is here we're all still here um and you know then you know victory day that was another amazing one this was just um you know somber um speaking to the moment um and telling ukrainians that you know um we're still we're still heading forward it's not going to be easy but um essentially yes articulating once again that that solid solid kind of almost universal view in ukraine um, which france is talking about that we're going to win this um it's going to cost lives it's grim um i mean that just at my own kind of very anecdotal level um people i've been speaking to and people i speak to informally you know um over over christmas and so on it it just hasn't changed that that is the sense in ukraine that we're in it to win it is god god save us from phrases like that but um that that i think remains solid in ukraine i think i think morale um remains high and i think francis is right to um return to this um this central conundrum which really we we've been facing since the beginning of the war which is that neither side um is willing to make the kind of concessions necessary for a negotiated peace no no matter how much you know kind of I don't know, columnists in the New York Times or 
or various think tankers or or you know good old Henry Kissinger um, might think that they've come up with a plan on paper and Ukrainians should uh, accept Russia gets to keep Crimea and the Russians should accept Ukraine gets to get into NATO. Just just forget it. Right? These these two sides who are determined to keep on fighting. Russia's absolutely determined to keep on fighting. Um, I think France has put a, an emphasis on this sense that Russia is losing here. I don't think that's necessarily that obvious in Russia. I think that they think, I don't know, um, maybe that they've got strategic patience. Um, you know, they, they, they've still got these huge reserves of, um, of, of prisoners uh, that Wagner can, can, can throw into the mix. Um, we're, we're a long, long way um, from any kind of, okay, chaps, we're exhausted, let's sit down um, and talk about this. And I think in the coming year, you're going to see big, you're going to see big pushes again. I think there's going to be another big Russian push. And there's going to be big Ukrainian pushes. Um, and this, you know, this war is still to be decided on the battlefield. And as Francis said, um, to a significant degree, um, in, I was going to say smoke-filled rooms, I suppose rooms aren't that smoke-filled these days, but, you know, the in the capitals of, of Western Europe, and a lot does ride on on enduring commitment. I think personally, my feeling is at the moment that you know the Russians would be naive to rely um, to bet on the idea that 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 Western commitment is going to crumble. There's always this promise of it. There's always this kind of like dangling threat. There'll be something said by I don't know a German politician or. Or, or somebody close to somebody in the White House about, well, it's time for the Ukrainians to talk. But really, um, you know, the West seems to be fairly committed. And I mean, you see, Emmanuel Macron is saying something just over New Year, you know, about how Ukraine needs us, you know, more than ever, how, you know, France and NATO are are completely committed to, um, to seeing the war ended on Ukraine's terms. Um, I don't think... Uh, I don't think we should necessarily shouldn't be naive, um, we shouldn't be complacent, but I don't think we should be pessimistic about um, Western resolve. Thank you, Roland. Going back to some of the updates listeners might have missed between uh, the end of last year and today, could you take us through sort of the main points that have happened, particularly the HIMARS strike over New Year's Eve on Russian territory? Yeah, so absolutely dominating. Um, Russian telegraph that's dominating Ukraine news um, today. The past few days is this um, this high mass strike on a Russian barracks in Makiyevka, um on New Year's Day, uh, overnight on New Year's Day, I think. Um, New Year's Eve, let's say that about one o'clock in the morning. So about one o'clock in the morning, um, after midnight on on New Year's Eve, um, a high mass strike hits um, a school housing Russian conscripts in a town called Makievka. Makievka is a kind of satellite town of Donetsk. It's kind of on the eastern, northeastern side of it. Um, it's not front line, but it's, you know, it's about eight miles between it and the kind of the front line that runs to the north of Donetsk. So it's not exactly deep in the rear. Um, anyway, the, the, these this strike caused an enormous explosion. The Russians have now said they say 63 Russian soldiers were killed. The Ukrainians were claiming many, many more. And I've, I've had difficulty kind of keeping track of various claims from that side. Um, I've seen claims ranging between 312 dead Russians to 400. Um, now I can't confirm that. Um, I can't confirm the Russian claim either. What is significant is that 
this was clearly a strike so damaging that um you know russian the russian ministry of defense russian official propaganda cannot ignore it and and that that means something very big has happened um whatever the final numbers are i mean so big that you've got people like uh, sergey Mironov, um you know a very um <laughs> loyal uh member of the russian parliament um you know publicly criticizing military decision makers um lots of rhetoric on the on the usual telegram channels um but but also from russian officials um criticizing once again criticizing the military leadership how was it that so many men were put into one single building and apparently alongside a huge amount of ammunition and perhaps fuel as well um because we've seen high mass strikes before right they don't kill kind of you know 300 people in in one go well we understand that um this the devastation of this strike was caused by the fact that the troops were sleeping alongside vast amounts of ammunition um which detonated when these rockets hit um and if you look at the um uh you know the usual kind of russian war telegram channels followers of the podcast will be familiar with them places like um you know pick one gray zone say the wagner one and rebar but places like that um I, I don't have the quotes to hand exactly but i've been reading several of them this morning and 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 the the theme is look um we've been seeing this since summer all right i mean they have repeatedly been targeting um, our ammunition dumps but also our our rear bases um and everybody knows everybody knows you cannot have the ammunition in large dumps close to the front it's got to be distributed into small areas maybe these um these conscripts you know recently mobilized guys not professional soldiers maybe they didn't realize that but their commanders damn well should have done so a lot of criticism um echoing around uh, around moscow um they're not trying to uh they're not trying to hide what happened i mean ria novosti the russian state news agency today is running um images of people in uh i think it's samara region uh, where most of these guys were from of uh, members of the public laying flowers um things like this so so real recognition that that russia suffered a bad blow it would be i mean they're saying 63 dead i mean i think that's probably the largest single uh, loss of life acknowledged by the russians since the war began and that more people may have died with the moskva the cruiser that was sunk by the ukrainians earlier in the war but um the russians there said one person confirmed killed and i think uh 27 missing um so you're looking at you know kind of an acknowledgement of 28 deaths there really um so 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 very significant point i'd just like to add a little bit of context here both sides do this right so both sides use um public buildings or hotels or sometimes convert this was a school um uh you know they 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 commandeer buildings and they put their troops in them and any one of those buildings is going to be targeted for a strike by either side um and I've definitely seen, you know, buildings hit by strikes on the Ukrainian side, which I'm, I'm fairly sure being used to house soldiers, um, and that's they why they were targeted. This is, um, this is very much within the context of this war. Um, the disaster seems to be connected with the, uh, you know, lax lax um, procedures around storing of ammunition. Um, other things going on. Um, there's been reports of quite a lot of shelling of Sumi region. Um, now Sumi is, uh, it's seconds. Sumi is a region just the north of Kharkiv. It's a border region with 
Russia. It was one of the regions invaded in the early days of the war. Um, and you'll remember that uh, before Christmas, we had those of Valery Zaluzhny, the top Ukraine's top general, gave an interview to The Economist, um, in which he said that he was expecting a new Russian offensive um, in spring, uh, maybe, well, not even the spring, in a new year, this month or next month, um, possibly again from the north, possibly again going to Kiev, um, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, 70 odd strikes on on sumi region well we have seen back and forth across that border i mean in kharkiv region there's been a lot of tit for tat shelling as well across the border the border is almost a almost a no man's land now across which both sides fire shells um however all eyes on that border um in the coming weeks um will the russians suddenly produce this um supposed kind of two hundred thousand man army they've been training in siberia that's that's what the ukrainians were saying in December, um, I'm not sure we've seen much evidence of that yet. And it's interesting that um, Kirill Budanov, the head of Ukrainian military intelligence, gave uh, um, a couple of interviews actually um, just before New Year, kind of playing that down. Kind of, he, he was kind of saying, "Well, look, you know, we can't rule out the possibility of another attack from from Belarus, but at the moment, I don't really see it." And 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 he seemed to be saying that a lot of it was the Russians kind of trying to distract. The Ukrainians by making it look like there might be attack from there. So doing things like sending trains full of troops to Belarus and then sending them back again. Um, so uh, nonetheless, you know, since the beginning of the war, it's been this way. Fog of war. We don't know if anything's going to happen until it does. Um, but that's uh, quite notable. A couple of other things we've had. Um, so Jeffrey Nice. Um, or niece, I'm not actually sure, um, who led the case against Slobodan Milosevic, um, uh, has said that Vladimir Putin is, or, you know, he called him a guilty man um, and should be charged as soon as possible um, in The Hague um, since he is the, you know, he is the Russian commander-in-chief. There's no doubt at all that he is the man responsible for the actions of, of his soldiers, including those who have committed documented war crimes. Um, now, interestingly, he did make the point there may, um, you know, down the line, um, someone may come up with some kind of deal under which, you know, Mr. Putin is not prosecuted, a deal that he suggested probably wouldn't be drafted by the Ukrainians. Um, that is another reference to, I think, what Francis was talking about earlier, you know, this this kind of urge to seek some kind of messy compromise to end the war down the line, which we keep on returning to when we're talking about, um, you know, certain Western powers getting tired, looking for an off-ramp. Um, that kind of thing. But I thought that was interesting because we're talking about like, the end of the war is a very long way away. Um, but it, it just it just strikes me how it's changed our world. You know, this past year has changed our world completely. The idea that people would be openly talking about putting Vladimir Putin on trial in The Hague um, is, is to me just just a very neat little token that indicates how far reality has shifted um, in a year, I, I never thought anyone would be talking about that as a as a realistic remote um, possibility. Um, one other thing to note: um, over on the Pacific coast, um, and I find this interesting partly because I was chatting to a friend about um, the Kuril Islands earlier today. Um, Russia has said that it is unable to continue with peace talks with Japan. Now, on the one hand, so a bit, bit of context here: Russia and Japan. Um, are still not at peace. They're still technically 
are they technically at war or not? Um, they never signed a peace treaty after 1945 and the end of the Second World War because uh, the Soviets had occupied um, a number of islands, which uh, Japan called the Northern Territories. The Russians called them the Kurils. Um, Japan wants them back. Russia says no. Um, the talks have been a perennial issue um, for the past 80 years. Um, sometimes they seem to come close to a deal, sometimes they don't. The most recent thing is the Russians saying no, because Japan is too openly, uh, it is a state that takes openly unfriendly positions and allows itself direct threats against our country. Um, and that's a reference to Japan aligning with, with the West over sanctions. Um, so that's more or less where we are at the moment. Um, and I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for that, Roland. On the global diplomatic front, Francis, do you have any more updates for us, please? Yes, we're just coming back off the back of what Roland was saying there. There's been an interesting exchange around Ukraine and the EU are to hold a summit in February in Kiev. So that's we said that we understand that's going to be on February the 3rd to discuss financial and military support. That's been announced by uh, President Zelensky's office. The details of this, obviously, what would be a very high level meeting with the European Commission, uh, have said that the parties uh, already discussed expected results of the next EU summit and that this one will be talking more about the supply of appropriate weapons and a new 18 billion euro financial assistance programme. Um, and there's obviously already been a lot of this going on over the new year period for reasons we've talked about already, of these sort of s- serial tranches that are coming in of economic support from the EU and other countries. But clearly this is, for, for whilst these conversations are going on, the most important aspect of this is that it's going to be taking place in Kiev itself self. Uh, again, indicative of just how things have changed from those early months of the war is that now politi- politicians feel continually more safe to go to Kiev, despite it being under bombardment. It sends a symbolic message, despite the, the attacks from Putin there, that um, the, the political establishment will not be deterred in its support of the country and uh, that they will continue to provide this essential financial support. Just one other story in the sort of political diplomatic space has been a huge row that's uh, erupted in the last couple of days relating to the remarks of, well, um, Christine Lambrecht, who is uh, one of the most senior foreign officials in Germany. And she was filmed on the streets of Berlin amid the New New Year's celebrations uh, and uh, has been said to have been made a rather tone-deaf message. So you can barely hear her and there's the sound of exploding fireworks in the background. And she said that the conflict in Ukraine has led to a lot of special experiences and the chance for many encounters with great and interesting people. And you can imagine this sort of contrast of um, her making these kind of remarks with sort of celebrations happening in the background whilst uh, the war is going on has uh, led to a lot of criticism. People saying that she's failed to hit the right tone, made the war sound like an exciting professional experience. Indeed, that's the remarks from a German prominent newspaper. And uh, as I say, the criticism has come not only from within Germany itself, but also from outside. Um, Senior officials in Ukraine have condemned this and uh, so have uh, quite a a few politicians from Britain and elsewhere and just generally commentators who are just aghast at what it says that the Germany's defence minister can be sort of so... um, well, politically 
unsensitive, um, to put it mildly, uh, it, given what the fact that Kiev is currently facing very different kinds of fireworks, namely these horrific drone attacks that have been seen now continually. Now, I just wanted to make one other remark about that, which is we've seen, as I touched on at the end of last week, some quite remarkable um, numbers come out of Ukraine in terms of the number that they are shooting down. Regular listeners will recall that when these drones started to be using, they were quite effective, that they were not being shot down um, as, as much as uh, as some of the previous uh, attempts um, earlier on in the war. But actually what we've seen in recent uh, days, and it really is days, that these new defence weapons that have been provided to Ukraine are proving highly effective and indeed they've already said that they've shot down 100% of some of these waves of Iranian drones. So as I say that is indicative of a real shift there that has proven I think strategically very valuable uh, during these these continued bombardments on Kyiv and of course that will be immensely frustration frustrating for, for the Russian generals who feel that these attacks are important only for striking the infrastructure of Ukraine but also so showing that this war will continue to affect the capital um, uh, for, in a way that perhaps was not the case when the uh, offensives, the counteroffensives were taking place um, that we've spoken about already at length. So quite a significant thing that and one that we inevitably will want to be following much more closely is whether these defensive weapons continue to be as successful in the coming days and weeks as inevitably Russian strategy will try to adapt as they currently seem to be. Thank you for that, Francis. We're coming to the end of our time this afternoon, so I'd like to come to our final thoughts. Um, over to you first, Roland. What would you like to leave our listeners with? The battlefield is is somewhat static at the moment. Um, it's it, it's not moving very dramatically. I mean, the British Ministry of Defence today put out one of its assessments saying uh, they don't think the Russians are going to achieve much of a breakthrough near Bakhmut anytime soon. I think that's probably true. I mean, it reflects the reality. The Russians are still hammering away there. Um, not much ground being taken. Um, still kind of locked in this... Um, I, I, hate, I hate to use the analogy, First World War style um, battle of attrition, you know. Um, the forces are locked in place, but the, and, and they, that doesn't mean things aren't going to start moving. Um, we should be uh, aware that both sides are going to want to take more ground um, as as the temperature warms up. Um, on, on, on the question of, of, of temperature, by the way, um, you remember we talked a lot about, um, you know, the ground will freeze and then the tanks can roll. The ground hasn't really frozen that much. I mean, it's still uh, very muddy. Thank you, global warming. Um, which is, by the way, um, very, very real and very noticeable in places like you know Ukraine and Russia, which historically were used to cold winters. That's another another conversation. Um, the ground is not as frozen as we expected it to be. It's been much more difficult to move. Um, but that moment will come um, when they want to make moves. And we are going to see retaliations from Kiev. The Russian Ministry of Defense is already claiming that it's done that. I mean, that they, they hit Klamatorsk um, and Drushkivka last night. Those, uh, those Ukrainian towns in held towns in Donetsk region, um, you know, that claiming extraordinary things like we destroyed two high Mars launches and 130 foreign fighters from the uh, foreign legion. Of course, the Russians call them mercenaries, things like that. Again, claims that cannot be confirmed in which um, going on, you know, past experience of Russian Ministry of Defense claims I'd be extremely leery of. Um, but I, I would expect both both attempts to, to genuinely inflict dramatic and very painful um, 
losses on the Ukrainians in revenge for Makivka in the coming days or weeks. Um, and also at some point, uh, things are going to start moving again. Um, so do not be lulled into a false sense of tranquility. Interesting thoughts. Thank you, Roland. Over to you, Francis, for your final thoughts. Well, I apologise for my rather bleak assessment of the situation as things stand. I want to emphasise that I do welcome feedback, as you say, both in agreement or disagreement from listeners. So do drop me a direct message on Twitter. I promise I will reply. Uh, But to end then on a more optimistic note, uh, the first thing I just want to say is I've spoken a lot in recent months, perhaps too much, uh, it might bore some listeners, about the energy front and how important the severity of this winter may be on Western support for Ukraine. The good news is, as I'm no doubt many listeners will be aware of who are listening in Europe is that this has so far been a very mild Christmas and New Year period. Indeed, I think... Uh, over the weekend, it was 17 or 18 degrees in Warsaw. So that is really significant in terms of the amount of energy that is being used. And that has meant, of course, that the amount of energy uh, bills that Russia is able to charge, some countries are still reliant on them, has been reduced and inevitably means that Russia will be out of pocket and that one of the key pillars of the strategy that Putin had will fail if things remain as they are. So there's that aspect of it and one that I think we should be very thankful for. Just imagine how serious some of the headlines would be if we'd had a really, really terrible winter and cold snap over that Christmas period. It would have been extremely severe and I think that it could have been a very, very serious one. So I think we should be thankful for that. The other thing to say is that for all of the horrors, and they are unquantifiable, uh, imagine, if it's possible, how much worse things could have been had key fallen and Zelensky been killed as we know was the Russian strategy Ukraine may have been divided in half or under the brutal occupation of a puppet government of some kind. I'm not saying that I necessarily believe that would have been the case. I think the Ukrainians would have fought on, but nonetheless it's possible that the shock of it would have led to um, a much more dire situation than the one that the Ukrainians currently face. There would have been more atrocities like Butcher across the entirety of the country, more political suppression, summary executions almost certainly. Ukraine has heroically resisted. It's created a new vision of their future and it's reminded the world, I would go as far as to say, as as to the value of freedom. It is already the most extraordinary story, one that will inspire generations to come and countless other countries who live under oppression. I would fear genuinely for a future where Russia had been able to seize a sovereign territory and get away with it. So we all owe Ukraine an unpayable debt of gratitude, which is why I believe that they deserve our wholehearted support, military, economic, political, in 2023. Last year, we asked you to send in your reflections on the invasion as we head into 2023. Thank you for your thoughtful and generous submissions. Here is a further selection. My name is Paul Mackey. I'm a neuroradiologist that lives in Sarasota, Florida. I listen to Ukraine the latest every day. I don't think I've missed more than a few episodes. I've recommended Ukraine the latest to my family members and anyone who would listen, but I don't know that anyone else has taken me up on it. Perhaps being immersed in Ukraine is not easy, even from a distance. I feel compelled as if it's my duty 
I live a very blessed life. My work is something that I love to do. I'm happily married. I have a really wonderful existence. To hear the way the Ukrainians and those that work with them struggle keeps me grounded in the way things can be and why it's important to remain aware. Anyway, thank you so, so much for your work and please keep it up. Thanks. My name is Kate. I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I'm a mother of two daughters. I'm a CEO of a startup that does race work. I never in my life knew anything about Ukraine or really honestly that any part of that world. And so when the war broke out, something happened and I wanted to know. And one thing led to another and I listened to y'all every single day. Um, one of the curious things that have come out of it is that I now care about combat and the history of war and the history of fighting in wars that and some of the firsthand accounts of the reporters in the in the field but also just being on the inside and start, sort of starting to learn how to be inside baseball in these strategies and in these plans and in these consequences and in even the suffering of people who are living through this horrible hour so um yeah, it's very, 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 very educational. And that is what I seek. And that is what I find. And I literally turn it on every day when it comes into my podcast. Um, so thanks. You are teaching me and you are inviting me into a world I knew nothing about and didn't even know how much I could care about. Thank you. Hi, guys. First of all, my God, it's so, it's so brutal. It's so sad it's so unending although I can't imagine how long they thought that the world wars would go on when they happened I'm a um, baby boomer so World War II plays quite a place in my my life my dad was um, in the army at Pearl Harbor when it was attacked and he spent the rest of his time in the army fighting in the Pacific. I don't know if any of the rest of my family is following this conflict at all. Um, these conflicts are kind of hard for us to take at times. We lost a beloved family member, my son-in-law, in Iraq in 2007. So I would imagine that they don't follow it. My daughter and my sons don't follow it. Uh, but I do. But I do. It's important to me. It's important to know what's going on. It's important to hear from other people who are reporting on it. And I appreciate every day what you do and how you go about it. You don't sensationalize anything. You don't blame anybody. You just report, which is absolutely the best gift you could give people who are somewhere else. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. 
You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.